welcome to season two of Where You Are. Season two, double the seasonings. We are recording this, Fox and I, on Monday, August the 10th. I have submitted my grades and have set my automatic out-of-office email response and will be taking my own little spiritual and creative emotional retreat until next Monday when school starts back. You poor thing, you. Because something happens to me once I have the weight of grading off my shoulders. It's like I'm a new person. In fact, yesterday, you and I tried to do this. Yes. We went through twice. Yes. And all day today, after I turned in grades, I was like, I feel creative and interesting and and the energy is flowing through me again. We can do this tonight. The energy is different now, and I'm glad for it. It is very different. And I'm sitting here with my artificially flavored tea. Good. I'm not spilling the tea. I'm drinking the tea. So in episode one of season two, I want to spend a little time talking about what we've been doing during the pandemic. Talk about some entertainment, or as RuPaul would say, entertainment. Talk a little bit about work, creativity, and then finally we're going to end this episode with a little interview of Mr. Fox Williams himself. Who's that? I'm going to turn the tables on you. I'm going to interview you about your brand new podcast. Oh, that old thing. The Audio Parlor. Yes. Which will be something that's debuting the same day as this podcast. Yes, the 17th, Lordy Willing. Good. And you know what I thought would be a really cool idea if you want to, and you can, if you don't, that's fine. You could put a little snippet in as a preview. Sure. Into the, our podcast. I'll think about it. So, let's get started talking about... First of all, pandemic times. Pandemic times. So what have you done during pandemic times, quarantines? Well, I was in a job, and then I wasn't in that job. I think that's happened to a lot of people, yeah. That's true. And I'm in another job now. It doesn't pay as much, but it pays something, which is good. And it's great because you worked really hard. You looked for a long time. I did. I did. I was effectively looking for work for four months. Yeah. And I landed this essentially just because for all the searching I've done, it came down to connections with old people at UAB or old, old colleagues at UAB. And they understood and they knew my work ethic and so on. And they were happy to have me on in some capacity with this new company. Yeah, I think a lot of times people, younger people, may not realize how important connections are when you're trying to get a job. But that really does help a lot. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm trying to think, you know, I think a lot of the jobs that I've gotten in my life were through, not nepotism, don't get me wrong, but, 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 but through recommendations or people that knew of something that was available. When jobs are a matter of survivability, these things are acceptable. Yes. In that stretch of time, mm-hmm. from what was it, March to basically Ju- June or July? I stopped doing work for the old job in April. Okay. So that's about where I take off. So what have you been doing? I was applying for jobs. I read a lot. What did you read? Uh, <laughs> mercy. I ordered some books on the Legion of Superheroes, some essays about diversity and world building and continuity building in the very earliest continuities of the Legion of Superheroes. I read a book called Jim Shooter Conversations, I believe put out by the University of Mississippi. Jim Shooter was one of the most well-known Legion writers and went on to editorial positions and had a fascinating career. So these were sort of research for your podcast that we're going to talk about. They turned into a yes. And I also, this, it wasn't really part of the research. It was just something I felt like I wanted to do. I ended up setting up an Excel spreadsheet of all the different Legion appearances from 1958 to 2020. You love a spreadsheet. Yes. There are six continuities. It gets a little fuzzy around some of the edges, but there's six tabs, one for each continuity. So you didn't know when you went into that necessarily that that was going to turn into or feed itself directly into your podcast? Not initially, no. I just thought there were a couple of events around the Legion that I wanted to know more about, and I had always known that there were parts of it that were kind of murky. I've since learned intentionally so from a publication standpoint, it's been kept murky. So I just wanted to see 
publishing wise how it all connected and it did and it was interesting and we're going to talk more about that at the end when we're talking about your podcast sure what else so you've read i've read you didn't work for a while but you were looking for jobs you found a job what else have you done you i don't did you drink a lot i mean i drank (laughs) it happened what's your drink of choice fox well i'm a simple man and the things that i can prepare i mean i'm i have five dinners i know how to make Oh, what are they? Tell us what your dinners are. Essentially, I can make rice or I can make noodles. Yes. I can make a peanut butter soy sauce with chicken or beef, Mm -hmm. or I can make a tomato sauce with chicken or beef. You just, it all, they all, there's little bits of combinations that all happen in there. You know what's interesting in the pandemic? uh, So I think that a lot of people gained weight because they were at home and, Part of my gaining weight was my drink of choice, which is the ginger ale and the white rum. I should get Well, to I wasn't that. saying you gained weight. Oh, well, thank you. But I was just saying a lot of people gained weight because they started eating more or cooking more at home and the, the butter and the whatever. I don't know. Sure. But I actually lost weight during the, the worst of the pandemic. Now I'm starting to gain it back. But, mm. but I, yeah, I walked so much. It was such a great stress relief and just a time to think. And during that month, I guess it was about a month when people really were locked down. There was no traffic. I could walk down Lorna Road and Hoover and there were no cars. Mm-hmm. I could have walked in the middle of the road if I wanted to. There were, there were a fox ran in front of me one day. Not you. Well, for all you know, <laughs> not me. The geese were everywhere. Mm-hmm. They scare me. I have to be honest. I mean, I, tr- I, I would go the other way when I saw a goose because I don't want those things attacking me. Sure. I've seen one too many YouTube videos on that. So They're but, the ones with the razor tongues. Yeah. <laughs> What? You, you've not seen... Do they have razor tongues? You know how how cats have the barbs with the rough tongues? Uh-huh. The the geese, you can see them. Uh, mm-mm. Mm-hmm. No. Do they cut you? Yeah. Um, no. So that did not happen, thank God. But mm-hmm. I took a lot of walks, like sometimes three hours. And I would go down to Aldrich Gardens, which is right down the road. Mm-hmm. And there's this beautiful lake that you can walk around. And it's just really nice. I had a, I had a really nice time being outside and walking. I got sunburned some days, but... I liked it. I really liked walking. And one of the things that I loved also is when it first started on Saturdays, I would, I don't know if you knew that I was doing this, I would take Saturdays as the day to do nothing, like no work, because I was still working, sure. you know, no social media or anything like that. Remember when I was doing that for a little while, but that was on Saturdays. And what I would do is I would go and I've always been one of those nostalgic people i love reminiscing so i would in the mornings in bed after i woke up just lay there and i would go back to the beginning of my life as far back as i could remember and try to move forward and see what all i could remember does that make me crazy it makes you of a different generation because my generation has learned to compartmentalize and dump every couple units of years oh no i can't (laughs) you know that's one of the things i think my mother gave us such a good childhood Mm -hmm. in spite of the challenges that she had with my dad leaving and all that stuff but we i had such a good childhood that sometimes i think that's it makes me want to reminisce more than than other people might Mm -hmm. and i know that that is a privilege that i have it's 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 something i'm very grateful for Mm -hmm. and but i love trying to see what all i can remember and just making connections to things that i had forgotten about and it's also some sort of creative process for me too i think a lot of the things that i want to do creatively draw on the period of my life between probably eight to 16 years old and that place where I was up in North Alabama and the people I knew and that whole town and uh, Hugh Laco and Arab and all that stuff up there. It, they could, it sounds like it could be a colorful cast. Yeah, it could be. Yes. Which is why I'm so drawn to writing about Ryan School up there in that mm-hmm. area and doing the research. So I also grew to hate work during uh, quarantine. Well, your work was asking things of you. Yeah, and it's not, here's the thing, it's not that I specifically hated my job, mm-hmm. the very concept of work started to drive me bananas. Sure. Just the, it feels really insulting after a while, because I see all the things that opened up in my mind and my heart, mm-hmm. and my spirit, and my body, and everything, when I had all of this time. Yeah. Now, again, I know how lucky I am to have had a job where I could work from home. I'm a teacher, mm-hmm. and I could teach from home, and all my, you know. But this just space within me opened up and I realized how much work takes from us, from me. I shouldn't speak for other people. 
And I've always been one of those people driven by my job and define myself by my success at work for a long time. Not so much anymore. Mm -hmm. So I have grown to have a sort of just a hint of bitterness about work. (laughs) I think growing up, people expected me to have that kind of pride in my work. And as I have come into the year of our Lord 2020 and modern era, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that has... Not maybe maybe not not been the case, but I have felt a need very early on to branch out into these other endeavors. Yeah, and that's one one of the reasons I love doing this. And you know, I've come up with a lot of ideas of things that I want to do. But what I realize as I get more and more sucked back into work, because now we're working half time on campus and half time at home. Mm-hmm. The more I, and I commute, so there's a little drive, and it, it it affects everything. The stress levels go up. I start eating unhealthy again and Mm -hmm. eating more fast food and and then also it takes up so much space in my mind and in my energy and my body too Mm -hmm. it's harder to get these things that i really enjoy doing it's harder to 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 get those things done or to find the place to even create them there there enters a different pace i can definitely see that yeah it's the old rat race i guess right sure And it doesn't help when people at work make stupid decisions. The views that I'm about to express do not necessarily reflect those of the people for whom I work. Bing, bang, boom. But the idea that I can't be at home all the time teleworking when I'm teaching online, that I have to be dragged into the office to sit in my office to teach online, that doesn't make any sense. It seems like unnecessary exposure. It's it's irrational and it's offensive and that gets on my nerves but this has been on my nerves with jimmy and the fox but you know the walks i'm finding a sort of sense of simplicity i've really i actually liked the lockdown a little bit Mm -hmm. now again acknowledging that it was very hard for a lot of people right um we had to find niceness where we could exactly was there anything that you were surprised about in, the, in terms of way the way the world reacted has reacted to the pandemic? Oh, sure. What's oh, the sure. most surprising thing? If you had to pick, I know there's a lot. What has surprised you the most before we move on? Because I'll tell you mine in a second. I mean, I've, I've watched the world become a place I didn't recognize in the last four or five years. But there were people close to me who... I knew were somewhat more reliable defense sit about politics who were willing to be complacent in the, in the political and economic time that we're in still, still keeping that fence sitting about issues that are at such a tipping point, you have to be able to engage with them. And that that gets into into discussions of media diet and ethical media consumption and truth and facts and all that sort of thing. It's just I, there were a lot of people close to me where I did not expect them to necessarily fall into the traps that I've seen other people do. Yeah, I think the thing that has surprised I, I that surprised me as well. Mm-hmm. The and we're you know it's not just the pandemic. We're also talking about race right now. Of course. And reactions to protests and things like that, I think. it For me, it enters into pandemic race and how th- those intersect with both each other and economic bases. Yeah, I've been really surprised by a lot of things. Actually, some things did not surprise me. They just disappoint me. Mm-hmm. But the thing that has surprised me the most is the lack of concern that I s- feel like a lot of people express towards people getting sick and dying. So the whole mask thing that that really did surprise me that people would be fighting wearing masks. And if you're one of those people listening, I'm not trying to offend you. It really does surprise me genuinely. The following is not an endorsement of NPR for numerous reasons. That being said, I was listening to them earlier just this morning and they talked about how if we get past a certain tipping point before the end of the year, uh, I think right now we're sitting just below 160,000 uh, dead in the in the country. Uh, we're approaching it being the third leading cause of death this year behind cancer and heart disease. Yeah. And the fact that there's a lack of concern about that and that it's politicized 
when it's of such a magnitude. That's it. I'm really surprised. I know how politicized everything is right now, and I know all of the stuff with Donald Trump and how that separates people on different sides, but I just never imagined, I really didn't, that this, a health issue, a public health concern, would also be politicized, and that there just isn't a lot. It doesn't at least not one so widespread, right? And mm-hmm. I don't. Yes, exactly. Like, yeah. I just guess I don't. I don't personally see. I don't think I'm alone in this. A lot of compassion in the culture, like memorials and you know things about the people who have passed. I just. I don't know. I've been surprised by it. My hope is that it'll. It will eventually come. Yeah, and it won't come soon enough. I, exactly. Well, let's move on, Fox. We're going to talk about entertainment. Oh, my. We've been talking about heavy stuff. You and I have experienced a lot of entertaining shows and music this summer. You found Lost Media. I did. (laughs) What was the Lost Media? Oh, Knott's Landing. Knott's Landing. God, I love, I love soap operas. I really do. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to think about why I love them so much while I ask you this. I know you love Grey's Anatomy. What is it that you like about Grey's Anatomy? Because that's a soap opera. What is it you like about it? So Grey's Anatomy... Tell me a wise one. Grey's Anatomy absolutely has a nostalgia factor for me. I was in the seventh grade when we moved into a little townhouse at the edge of the school district across the street from a wildlife preserve. And my mother would be out late at work and would come home and we would have dinner. And the thing that... We didn't always eat at the table. We didn't always get to eat together. But the nights that we could, she wanted to watch soap operas. And in particular, I don't think she remembered most of the plot, but she and I would watch Grey's Anatomy when it came on those Thursday nights. I like Grey's Anatomy for its willingness to have both small and large moments. It had shocking moments for me in those season finales. People who watch it know what those season finales are like. I like it because it had a lot of strong women of different backgrounds that reflected a lot of what I saw just in even just observing my mom's professional environment. This was something I recognized and this was something that I was happy to see. And yeah, it's it's just. For for all for all that I can make fun of it, and for all the world can make fun of it, it's it's a lovely show, and I'm glad it's existed at its time. I don't know about it now, but at its time, I loved it. Yeah, I love. I, I never got into Grey's Anatomy. My friend Eric really liked Grey's Anatomy. I loved all of those '80s soap operas at night. The and the daytime ones like General Hospital and One Life to Live. But the Dallas and Dynasty and Knott's Landing, mm-hmm. Falcon Crest sucked. I didn't really like that that much. But there's something about, I don't know what it is, but I love those I love those big moments where there's so much at stake mm-hmm. and you, you build up to this dramatic point for weeks sometimes, sometimes whole seasons. Mm-hmm. You're waiting for this one thing to happen, this couple to get together, or this, this person to find out this secret or... And it's of such a different construction than what I grew up with. So what you've exposed me to watching these past few months, it's been such a lovely study for me because it, we feel the need to put so much comedy in our soap operas now. And there's such a difference in camera work and technicality. And one could argue craft or good or bad or high or low, but there is a high octane drama in the stuff you've shown me that oh. is it that's not in the newer stuff. Yeah, the newer stuff is much more I think what's the word I'm looking for self-deprecating. It's self-deprecating. Ref, refer, self-referential. Certainly refer, well referential and it happens on both ends I think. Yeah. But the older stuff in terms of the way it was filmed looks more cinematic to me. It's and it and it's scored. It's got that really dramatic violins and pianos and crescendos. I think the scores are definitely cinematic. The What I've seen of like the camera work, it almost looks like old VHS to me, or maybe that's just how those well, versions that's, survived. That's probably, yeah. Okay, well that's that's the part that stuck out to me most then. I love Knott's Landing. I also always love those strong female characters like Karen, who was just you know, this sort of 
what was she was like this sort of political or community activist, but mm-hmm. she also owned her own business and her husband died. And then Abby came along and was just this bitch, you know, <laughs> like just this best face on the show. I always gosh. know her face when I come in the room. Donna Mills is something else. And Joan Van Ark playing Valine, who will just get on your nerves, but she's so good playing mm-hmm. that character. These people like be- became those characters mm-hmm. and they were so associated with them. I love that. I've also listened to a lot of music this summer. Yes. I listened to Dolly Parton on my long walks. I went through all of her albums, all of her solo albums that were original material. Sure. And that's about 48, I think. I think at one point in the summer, you had me look at what were the uh, the recollections or the repeat albums and on like a Wikipedia list. That's a long list. <laughs> yeah, those were a lot. But she is so talented. She is a force of nature. I love her so much. I just, I never got tired of listening to that music. And one of the things that I wanted was, first of all, I had never done that. I'd never listened to all of her music. I, who, when would I have thought to do that except during a pandemic and when I was locked down? But it took a few months to go through all those albums because I would listen to one album for like a week over and over again. Just, I went and in different places, not just on my walks, but if I got in my car to go somewhere, I would listen in my car. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted, and it's going to happen... 10 years from now, God look, God willing, I'm still alive. When I think back on that time, on the pandemic and the lockdown and this time that we're in, I'm going to associate it with her. Mm-hmm. And it's it's formed like little <laughs> nuances and synapses or whatever in my, in my brain, in my psyche, where I have connected Dolly to that time. Sure. I like doing stuff like that. Absolutely. Because there are certain albums that I can listen to, like Nancy Griffith takes me right back to the 90s to, to, to my col- early college years, really. Mm-hmm. Um, the Judds reminds me of the 80s and being a, t- a kid, not a teenager, a kid. Whitney Houston takes me back. I mean, just, the, the, the music really does something. It's so powerful. Mm-hmm. When I'm reminiscing, I think listening to music of a certain time helps me recapture. Then there's some music I hear that takes me to times that I don't want to remember, like The Cure. And what's that song? Anyway, Disintegration, the album Disintegration, which I listened to after a breakup in college, and I cannot listen to it anymore, even though I love. I think this is part of that 90s dead zone that I haven't really touched too much of. (laughs) Also, books. I've read a lot. I've read a lot this summer, Mm -hmm. more than I I have in a long time. Yeah. Um, You were reading some things. We'll talk more about that. But I think we mentioned them earlier, the two Legion books that I had touched on. But I love this book that I'm reading. uh, I'm reading right now about Anne Bradstreet. It talks a lot about she was America's first poet. She Mm -hmm. came over with John Winthrop and her father, Dudley. And um, I think John Cotton came over with them. But she came over in like the 1600s, early 1600s. And learning more about her and her life has really this writer who's I can't remember her name, Charlotte something. She really did a lot of research and brings that whole time to life in terms of how they built their houses, what they did on a daily basis, where people like, I didn't know everybody was sleeping in the same room basically because there's the big fireplace and the, Everybody's in the same daggum room. I don't know how they had sex. You touched on a lot of Americana and a little bit of sex through this summer, didn't you? I did. (laughs) I'm really fascinated by American history. I think a lot of us were just given a raw deal in our education Mm -hmm. through no fault of our own. True. Even at the age of 40, what am I, 45 now? There's so much that I'm learning. You know, I read that book, 1491. Mm Mm-hmm which is about Native Native American, Mesoamerican history, and the idea of who were the people here before Columbus, basically. And mm-hmm. it goes way, way, way back. And just the idea that that's this big blank space in our education, the big blank spaces that in our education about race and slavery. It's just, there's a lot to relearn, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's one of the things... I like to read about American history and for that reason. And it's good that you do, because a lot of that becomes more and more relevant even today, because it gets into the kind of people that we forget about and the people we need to be thinking about. Yeah. I'm so often with my students asking them in American Lit, what does it mean to you to be an American? I mean, we're imedi- we're reading American literature. Mm-hmm. So what is it that makes it American? And what is it to be American? People, they usually get tired of me asking, but... I think that's something that we have to think about a lot. It's like, 
the mythology, there's just mythology about everything. I believe we have, we all have this mythology about ourselves, who we think we are, and half our lives is spent trying to convince people of our own mythology. Sure. And I think at some point you have to understand what someone's mythology of himself or herself or themselves is and kind of buy into it with them. YouTubers would call it brand. Well, okay. That's very (laughs) cynical, but... uh, so well, th- it is a mythology that is used is. as part of how to make a, a market. Yeah. I think brand is a, is another good word for it. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, I think we convince ourselves of our brand, our mythology, and I think as a country we do that. And I think it gets so deep rooted in us, so psychological in terms of our own worth and our own identities. That's the that that becomes what we're really fighting about when we're fighting about racism or protests or pandemics or whatever it's really not just politics it's what do we care about who are we it's our whole value i think people feel as though their whole value system is being attacked right so i don't know i don't know how i got to that but i'm reading a lot about that and the other thing that i'm reading right now is this book about uh, shared governance in the in uh, in education in colleges and universities mm-hmm. and uh Let's talk a little bit more about work. Work. I want to talk about the way that this has affected work. And I was talking about this a little bit earlier. Has this done anything for you in terms of the way you think about work? It has a bit. I I find myself in a tighter situation financially than I have been in a few years. Not terribly so, but like a couple years of, of building and saving through grad school, of all things, I... I'm 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 back a step where I was before in a certain way. And part of that would be thinking of towards, okay, we have to build up this work. And people have always told me about, well, this work has to be you this work is going to be a stepping stone for what comes next. And I really understand that with the job I'm in now, because the job I'm in now, granted I'm I'm in my third week. It's been it's been hard at times. There's it's a very small company, so if someone's missing or someone's out, then the whole company notices. I am trying my best to pick up the skills that I can, because I think that as much as my schooling was of use, I think in a certain sense, I need to be able to prove, okay, I can put this down. I can put this into application. And I think I'm doing well with that. We've some. I've inherited some problems that came before me, but... It's going well, and I'm and I'm hoping that that's at least building toward that. Even with the stress that that inheritance has brought with it, I'm trying to temper it with. Well, okay, we're building, we're building here. Yeah. Having been out of work for several months and going back, is there anything about the routine of getting up and going in and being responsible for being in a specific place for a while? Does that is that something that bothers you? Are you readjusting to it nicely? Do you see what I'm saying in terms of the, the way your time is spent now? Oh, absolutely. My the routine I land in I land in just fine. Getting up and going in, coming back at a certain time. I've well, at a certain time I've had some errands that I've had to take care of along the way. So it's I've not been coming back to the apartment. Errands, he says. Well, yeah. Well, I ha- He's drinking. I, I'm kidding. <sighs> Go ahead. Well, you know, uh, just I had car troubles recently. He's Let's eating say and that. crying in his car. I'm eating and crying in my wrecked car, yes, <laughs> uh, which we won't talk about. But it's the time in between. If I'm jumping between a bunch of projects and I'm having success with those, I can do pretty fine. But there are some parts of my job that are by necessity monotonous. There's a lot of uh, I'm in metallography, so there's a lot of grinding and polishing that you just have to kind of get a feel for and it takes a while so it's in times like that where i'm still trying to figure out what to do with my brain in that exact moment how to both apply it and still feel like i'm not just stuck in this time because i do i am feeling that i'm feeling tractored into a time at work that i wasn't feeling even at the previous jobs i feel that way about grading (laughs) sure i i love teaching i really do Love. Maybe that's not the right word anymore. I like I like it. I like teaching. And compared to what I did before, which was retail management, I really enjoy the... There's a lot of freedom in teaching. Mm-hmm. I don't really have to worry about what I wear, for instance. I, I can express myself at work. And it seems like what I do has some meaning, right? Sure. It se- feels meaningful, what I do. 
not in the sense that I have some highfalutin idea that I'm saving lives and all that, because I don't. But the grating is really a chore. Well, you have so much of it. I've seen it. It's the thing that weighs me down. And then, honestly, and these views do not express those of the people for whom I work, working for people, people especially who are on power trips and have administrative titles and make over 100, you know, 100,000 a year, or some, in some cases, two and 300,000 a year, who have silly, ridiculous ideas about, quote, management or leadership. Don't get me started on that, because there's no leadership. But... It that friction also wears me down. Sure. So the grading and dealing with people who are, I think, either abusing their power or not very capable in the jobs that they're doing. I'm not specifically talking about anybody at my job necessarily. I'm just saying in general, mm-hmm. those things can wear me down. But imagine, <laughs> you know, I remember working in retail. I never had, I didn't have a say in anything. Until I was a manager, but even then there was district manager, there were district managers and corporate headquarters and all that. So you're always, I guess, answering to somebody, but as Bob Dylan says, you're going to have to serve somebody. There's ideas I've been thinking about. I don't necessarily have the language for yet, but there's levels of displacement, of agency, of power Mm -hmm. that I feel like you have a lot of experience with. And with a lot of what I see with education stuff that you tell me about. There are these loftier ideas of, well, the teachers, by a philosophy, should have more of a power. And I don't know that that's always really expressed, especially in this geographic location we're in. It's not. And that's why I really like this book I'm reading about faculty governance, The Rise and Decline of Faculty Governance. And I started a little faculty book club at my college, and I asked other people in the state if they're interested, they can join. We're going to do a Zoom conference with the author of that book, Larry Gerber, in October. So I was really excited that I got that. And you know, I would never have had the guts to ask a perfect stranger who had written a book to join me in a Zoom conference. If you hadn't done a whole season of it. Yes. Now this is not for the podcast. He's not on the podcast. He's he's at work. But do you feel like, I'll tell you something that bothers me and I want to ask you about this. This idea of, I hear a lot of celebrities say this and a lot of really wealthy people say this. And some of those people I admire, but the, they'll say things like, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. That sounds more and more like horse crap to me as I get older. The things that they <laughs> love just so happen to have been rewarded. Yeah. I just think, again, it's mythology. We have this mythology about work. And don't get me wrong. I understand the... I, I, ambition and and knowing what you want and having a singular purpose and achieving it and and even doing well and making money and I, I get all that but we have to when you create a mythology and that's what it is you have to ignore a lot of things in the world like pain and suffering and poverty and and justice or injustice injustice in- inequity especially that which benefits a person because sometimes that person is you yeah. So I, I, I think more and more about these things and, and I get I'm getting more and more sick of people calling teaching a calling. Listen, I guess some people are called to things, mm-hmm. but I'm you know, people will say, Oh, teaching is a calling. Well, not really, it's a profession. Now maybe it is some people's calling. And and that's nice, but it's also a profession with a salary, with benefits, with standards you know when i think of a calling i think of nuns and monks and sainthood and i and the common thread that i see between the three professions there monk nun teacher is an assumption of poverty and suffering yeah and that should not be baked into teaching as a profession i agree and i i have even seen in this pandemic time that we're in now especially in k through 12 you're seeing a lot of discussions about whether it's safe to go back to school. And the teachers were always the last part people to be considered in that discussion. And everything I ever read or heard, it was always about the students. It was about the parents, which is important, obviously. But no one was saying, well, what about the teachers? For a while. Now they're talking about them. But I just saw an article somewhere. I think it was Washington Post. It was one of those opinion pieces. But it was someone arguing that teachers should go to work because it's their duty, just as nurses went to work. Nurses got PPE. 
that person who wrote that article has no understanding of the education system. No. Because, no. I, I see, and th- that's what I don't get. It's the idea that, oh, you know, we're, they're, they're martyrs. The teachers are martyrs or saints or, you know, putting on their hair shirts and. <laughs> Also, nurses are there because they are literally standing between this person living or dying. The teacher is arguably participating in a system that is calling upon the nurses. It's creating the situation exactly. of life or death. It's just the, that was an illogical argument mm-hmm. in my mind and also offensive. But I don't, here's the thing. I think that there are really wonderful teachers out there who do these amazing things. And I've had them. But I also think that there are teachers who are just, they're good teachers. I'm going to say something controversial, maybe. I don't think a teacher has to change anybody's life. I do not think that's a requirement of being a teacher. It's great if they do. Sure. And especially, I guess, with younger children. And But it also gets into tricky territory because I can think of people who abuse their power as teachers who, who are so self-important and self-indulgent that they think they're doing such wonderful things that they're really harming people, mm-hmm. harming students. So I just don't know. Changing a life is a neutral term. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I, I'll, I'll say this. I have had teachers who, who I think changed my life. Mm-hmm. Daryl Ledbetter changed my life. I don't think I would be the person I am. Deborah Bowling changed my life. But... And for the for the better, I think. But anyway, did you have a teacher who really changed your life? Well, I was actually just thinking, I think there's a class that changed my life in a certain way. And it wasn't necessarily an engineering class either. Um, I don't know if this story has gone on the record yet, but I, I got an F in college once, and it was British and Irish literature. <laughs> I got an F in modern British drama one time. Go ahead. I, that particular semester, I think it was my freshman spring semester, I was taking at the same time, or maybe it was the sophomore, it was early on, it was early on, and I was I was taking organic chemistry, I was taking a polymer chemistry senior level course because I wanted to get into that professor's lab, and she said, well, she tried to call my bluff, basically, and mm-hmm. I got an A in that class. And I worked in her lab, and between those three things... British literature failed. <laughs> um, <laughs> but later on, the last semester of undergrad, I had put li- I had put literature off to the very end, just the one literature credit that I needed. And I had senior design, and I thought, I'll take an online. I t- it was like intro to literature. It was more of a survey of poetic and narrative and creative writing devices, more so than a particular location or era. And it was online. It was really chill. I took it seriously, but the fact that it was all in a text form, I think I think in particular that really resonated well with me and allowed me to just... I was two weeks ahead on every assignment, which meant that I didn't have to worry about a deadline ever. I could just have fun with it. I had fun with it. Yeah. I stopped trying to fit a format because I had fit the format so many times, and I just thought, well, what would be a fun thing to write? And I wrote it. Yeah. And that was great. I think that's what ultimately led into some of the podcast stuff I've, I'm doing now that we'll talk about later. I think that was the, I think that was the seed. Yeah. And that makes me think, you know, here's what I think I do with my students. And as a teacher, I am not, am not interested in trying to change someone's mind or to change their lives. I'm really not. Mm-hmm. My main interest as someone who teaches writing is that I want to help them become better writers. But as an experience that they're having with me for an entire semester, I feel that I owe them uh, integrity. That I owe them. So that means that I try to make my, my assignments, you know, clear objectives, and that they know what they're tr- setting out to do, and that I grade fairly. And I think that I should be honest with them. And honestly, I think they should have a fun time in my class. Mm-hmm. because It's I- so hard to, though. It took so long for me to break through to that. Oh, really? To yeah. have fun? To ha- it, took, it took all of high school and college, basically. Well, I think the thing that I will say this about myself, just in case people who don't know me think when I'm saying things like, I don't think a teacher has to change someone's life. That doesn't mean that I don't think that I'm doing a good job. I think that I'm a really good teacher. And I know that because I build relationships with students and I, and I hear their feedback and I see my evaluations and I know that I'm more interested in doing a good job and not doing any harm. I really feel like teachers maybe should take the, the, the Hippocratic, is that right? Hippocratic 
Of, yeah, that's a, that's the doctor. Like first, yes. do no harm. I, I'm very, I'm very respectful of my students. I'm very friendly with them, and I and I, I know my subject matter. And I think those are the things that matter a lot. Now, some people just have a gift, like Daryl Ledbetter, my English teacher, or Deborah Bowling, who my elementary teacher. Some people have that magnetic personality, that great gift, and th- that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I just I think we put a lot of pressure on teachers to be great. When really you need to just, you need to be, you need to do your job well. Right. Uh, and some people's personalities are not, you know, some people are interest, introverts, teachers. I'm talking mm-hmm. about teachers. Some, you know, so they don't necessarily want to be forming bonds with students. And some people need that space between them and the students. So mm-hmm. I just think it's a lot more complex than everybody's got to be great changing lives or they're a sucky teacher. You know? mm-hmm. Anyway, that's what I think about teaching. Let's talk about creativity creativity and then after that we're going to talk about in the last 15 minutes of the podcast we're going to talk about your brand new brand spanking new podcast called the audio parlor but i want to talk about creativity leading into that because during this time i actually have had a lot of ideas a lot of creative ideas one of the things i would love to do i don't know if i should share this because somebody might steal it (laughs) No, they won't steal it because it's not an original idea. I really think it would be cool to start a podcast series, like a uh, scripted series. Sure. I think that would be really fun. Yeah. I thought about doing something like a soap opera that takes place in a college, for instance, mm-hmm. or... Um, I mean, my generation, our first thought when we hear scripted podcast series is Welcome to Night Vale. So you, you've you heard of that, I'm sure. Oh my God, I have not. And I'm so embarrassed, but I have not. This is why it's good we have intergenerational things going mm-hmm. on here. You should look into that sometime. What's it called? I'll write it down. Welcome to Night Vale. Um, I'm not writing it down. You'll remember. Okay. Well, Welcome to Night Vale. Welcome to Night Plug. Is it? Oh, please. Um, <laughs> I think it's still running. So you might just try a smattering of it, but it's really... Um, it's really like this episodic look at a town. It's it's kind of twin peaksy in the sense that it's based on the idiosyncras- idiosyncrasies of a particular region. Mm-hmm. And it's I believe it has the framing device of just a guy doing public service announcements over the radio. And it's all scripted and they do silly stuff within that. You might you might check that out for ideas. I would love to do something. One of my friends I directed this little short play and she was in the play. And now she lives in China and she's doing, I'm not going to say her name because she may not want me to spread her name sure. on her, but she is doing a scripted series with some friends of hers over there. And, you know, I've, I've heard of, I remember we were listening to, I was listening to RuPaul's podcast one day and he was talking to his editor who was doing some sort of scripted series, like a horror mm-hmm. series. So I know it's out there and I heard a thing today on NPR actually about some guy who's doing like a series of monologues. I love the idea, I guess, of... Of doing things like that and collaborating with people. I would love to get together and write scripts with a group of people and come up with something interesting and maybe do once a month or what it's a, it will be a lot. It would be a lot of work. I think it would be a lot of work for all parties involved, but I remember that was the interesting part to me. I mean, the two interesting parts of the, the scripted drama part and the showcasing of other people's talents part. Yeah. I really a long time ago, I talked about this in the last episode of season one. A long time ago, I had this idea of creating something similar to a theater company mm-hmm. here in town. But it was really more like a, I don't know what you would call it, but maybe a production company. But a nonprofit that celebrated and promoted diversity and inclusion in the arts. Sure. And it wasn't necessarily about a space, but was more about bringing people of different backgrounds, different beliefs, different, whatever, different creative, um, styles, styles to, in different, to one place to create things, to give them a space. Okay. And I think that that's the sort of thing I envision that a podcast series could do. It could even be a series of one, like a bunch of one-offs, like somebody has one thing they do one week and somebody else, you know, it's maybe not necessarily a series, but just standalones. Mm -hmm. I just I want to play around with it. I, I love, I want to be more and more creative because I feel like I have, I have, I hope that my, the people aren't listening at where I work, but I do have this five year plan in place to move forward in my life to another something. Sure. 
And it's not about getting out of something or ending something. It's just this, I'm, I'm trying to move toward, toward the light, Carrie Ann. Go toward <laughs> the light. That's uh, a Poltergeist reference from um. younger folks. But I, I want to go towards some things that I'm interested in, like creatively. I don't know how it's going to affect me financially or anything like that, but this is the kind of thing that, uh, that I'm interested in, these creative outlets. So if you have any ideas, anyone out there, you want to collaborate with me on something, or Fox, if you want to collaborate. I mean, I have my own thing I'm about I know. to know You are going to be, we're going to talk about that in a second. I do want to mention, and I'll put this on social media as well, that Sam Mitchell, who was a guest with us last season. Yes. She has a movie, a short film that will debut at the... Sidewalk Film Festival? Yes. It is. I was about to look it up, but I'll put it on the on the website. I think it's it's at the end of August, the Sidewalk Film Festival. It's on a Wednesday night, and it's a series of shorts, and mm-hmm. her film will be in that series. Is it one... You and I went to a few of those last year. Is it one of those where, like... You, the audience rates it? And, Probably. Okay. Although I don't know if they'll do that this year since it's going to be at the Leeds Drive-In. Right, right. But that would be something fun to do. The only thing that scares me away from going to the Drive-In Theater is that I was going to do it one time this summer. Do you remember this? You, you've you not seen Mean Girls. We were going to go see Mean Girls. We were going to go see Mean Girls. They were showing it at the Summit. For the record, we did buy tickets. We supported them. Yes, we bought tickets and supported them. But in the end, I couldn't go because I read the thing and it said that you could not leave your car running. Because which it, meant, would, it would get so hot for you. So I just can't sit in the heat, y'all. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. I do not like summer. And those of you who do, I don't understand you. There will always be a little bit of a wall between us. Yes. Not like a Donald Trump wall, but just a little thin, like a little, maybe like a little a sheet, a sheet rock. Uh, what's this called? Drywall. Drywall. You know, we can get through it, but mm, you can take a little, you know. I hate the summer. I hate, hate, hate the summer. I've seen your thermostat. I understand this. I know. It's always on like, what? now I'm going to. Anyway, <laughs> so let's move on in the last 15 minutes to talk about, by the way, we have a new theme song. We don't know what it is yet, but Fox is hunting it down. I'm moving the uh, original theme song that we got permission to use to the end because it, I don't know. I like to change every year. But I do miss hearing that song, so I'm just going to say, Brighten the corner where you are. Okay, that's going to be loud. Ding. I love that song. It mm-hmm. did inf- It did inspire this podcast. Mm-hmm. Now. Yes. So, Fox so. Williams. Oh, no. Today, in the studio, we have a young whippersnapper who goes by the name of Fox Williams. Yes. And he has... Created his own podcast. This is true. So, tell us about your idea for this podcast and what you'll be doing, Fox. It's called The Audio Parlor. The Audio Parlor. I love that. The Audio Parlor. And you got great artwork. Yes, I do. You commissioned it. I commissioned some lovely artwork of this of this audio parlor that will be right there prominent whenever you go listen to it wherever you listen to it. The plan is right now to have a website and Apple Podcast and Spotify, the same as we've done for Where You Are. But there will be some lovely artwork for it. The Audio Parlor, hosted by Fox the Jackal. As far as we're concerned on that channel, it's not necessarily Fox Williams, it's Fox the Jackal. The reason for that being, here we've done a very nice interview-style podcast, and that's been lovely, and we've accomplished some very nice things with that. I'm looking with the audio parlor to create a space where I can do some more experimental stuff, at least from an audio uh, editing standpoint, a space where I can talk about some things I want to talk about, do some essentially media criticism. I've been watching YouTube media critics for about six years now, and I've picked up a particular voice that I've that works well with my own, I think. So, I, yes, I'm going to be doing so there. And it'll be hosted by Fox the Jackal because he, talking about media, I expect it will hit an audience that maybe is a little more aggressive or at the very least more vocal than maybe some of the audience we've picked up here. So I'd like that little bit of distance. Right. This is your project and yes. your audience will be a little different mm-hmm. and the style, it's your own. Thank you. And I was really impressed. The first thing that impressed me was that you had the wherewithal to sit and write 
I mean, I understand that the episode, for instance, the first episode might have turned out 30 minutes, right? Right. But that was a lot of writing for just 30 minutes. I watched you do it, and it took a lot of insanity slash discipline. (laughs) And I was a little worried about what the product was going to be, but I remember reading it for the first time, and I was just blown away at how creative and just, you're a brilliant writer. Well, thank you. You really are. Thank you. So that blew me away. And then the other thing, after listening to them, is the quality of the editing is just fantastic. Well, like I said, I've ha- I've gathered some experience here on Where You Are, and I edit on, on what's called Reaper, uh, this Reaper audio software that has so many tools built into it, and such a community online willing to talk about what these plugins do and how to combine them to make some really nice effects. So I really do create some multi-dimensional effects in there. I've maybe someone with like an actual audio degree might look at that and scoff, but I, I do, I create some feelings and effects and tones in there that I would not even expected of myself a few months ago. Yeah. You use sound very effectively throughout it. Thank you. There's nothing cliched about it. There's nothing. It's very original and interesting. The sound palette is amazing. And I really do think that you could go into editing if you wanted to. It is a thought not unconsidered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, there's something about it that you have a real knack for it. And I don't think people, or even I, appreciate... No, I did. People may not understand how much editing influences even a podcast like this, which is all just a couple of people talking. But even though you're... It's more obvious the skill that you have when you listen to your podcast where there's a lot of sound effects and music cues and and the, even the clip of the pacing itself you can I think you've done something where it's there's a clip to it. Yes, I've I've played around with where I cut off particular takes and I cut myself off in a few places to to comedic effect and I've I Granted, it's probably most easiest because a lot of it is my own voice, and right. I've and I know how to manage that, so I can create what I want, and then I can go into the machine and alter it even further to what I still want. But yes, and even <laughs> though it's more obvious in that kind of podcast, though it's so much more subtle in this podcast. Oh sure, and in- I knew that from the beginning when we first started this. I turned to you and said, "I am." undeniably going to have some voice in this and i'm always going to turn to you and say is this okay what i'm doing here and it always is i trust you implicitly well thank you like you can do whatever you want when you're editing this podcast because i really do trust you watch me put some funky sound effect right here (laughs) that's fine if you want to (laughs) i really think that this podcast is going to be a hit i think that you're going to have an audience and you know you've now you've got like over a thousand people on Facebook that have friended you. I, that's a place for you to to market, you know. Hopefully so. Yes. Not market. You're not making money off of it. That's true. At or least are you? Not at this stage. Okay. Just let's build up the interest and you, see what. But we you can eventually, do with it. maybe you could monetize it. Maybe we could. Maybe I could. Let's see. Um, why don't I take the time to say some of the topics that I'll be getting into? Yeah, please do. So with this premiere on the seventeenth. That means he didn't think I was doing my job, everybody. Well, I just... I've... I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> well, Tell us what you're going to be t- talking about. This premiere, I have an hour's worth of content. I plan on uploading a little preview, a little introduction and three episodes. So about an hour of content there. The first episode is called Grey's Anatomy, colon, Straight Trash? Question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> I think it's a nice opener. I like a lot of... The music choices I made in there, I found a nice treasure trove of an audio library that I've been building up, and it's a nice run-through of a very poignant storyline and a perspective on it that I think gets missed in kind of the shuffle of, well, when did Grey's Anatomy peak? Where did it falter? And I, I think I found a nice point there where you can see, well, okay, maybe these characters aren't necessarily the way you remember them. But there's some good stuff in there. And in particular, uh, 
there's there's stuff for people my age who grew up with it. There's people there's stuff in there for people who still watch Grey's Anatomy. For people of a different generation, Jimmy in particular, you watched Dynasty. I do spend some time looking at Preston Burke's mother, who was played by Diane Carroll, mm, yes. the lovely Dominique Devereaux. Rest in peace. Uh, she had a wonderful, wonderful part, especially toward the very end of her appearances in there. And that, and I've spent some time respecting that, yes. I think it's a smart choice. Mm-hmm. Not that you did it on purpose, but to choose Grey's Anatomy because it does cut across several generations. I think so. Yes, I think so. Certainly. Now you get into some things that are much more specific. Yes. Uh, the second episode is something a little more specific to oh, my growing up. See, now this is my favorite one, but it's your least favorite one. Because I, I like this one because you get very personal and you reveal, you're very vulnerable in it, which I love. Personal in a fictionalized sense. Not all of it is completely true to life, but... You like it because it's so personal. I have my issues with it because it was me experimenting with a tone. I call it a queer sympathy for 303, Don't Trust Me. That is a song from 2008 that a very select slice of age groups will remember. I was in I the, don't know it. I was in the eighth grade when, when it came out, so we were listening to that all my high school years, and God help us, my sister listened to that song. She probably shouldn't have been listening to that song. <laughs> People might remember it most for the bridge in which we talk about Helen Keller and her hips. And it is problematic, but I want to reach a little further than that because there is a reason that song has stuck with me. And I hope that you'll take the journey with me to see, well, what is there? Why is this song still here? I love that one. Has your mother heard that? I have talked with her about it. Uh, A fictionalized composite version of her does make an appearance in that narrative. I think she'll find it interesting. I don't know how much of it she'll remember just because it's such a... It probably had more of an effect on me than it did her. Now, Um, the third one... The third one. The third one, because because I am a goober, the third one is about a girl named Triplicate Girl. I mentioned earlier I've been looking into the Legion of Superheroes. One of their members is Triplicate Girl, a girl who can split into three identical bodies and then combine back again. Her She orbits three suns, therefore her whole race can do that. It's just science, people. And this episode is part of a little mini-series that I plan on talking about her multiple times. So this is Triplica Girl Part 1, When Three Become Two. It's funny stuff, y'all. It is funny stuff. And it's, interesting. It's, it's some great original continuity. The first version of the Legion ran from about 58 to charitably 89. And this is right around 1966 with a two-part story concerning her encounter with Computo the Conqueror. And people who know what I'm talking about are like, oh, God, what's going to happen? And people who don't know what I'm talking about need to find out. <laughs> and I'll say this about your podcast. It, to some people, it might sound, oh, that's a very specific audience or whatever. But actually, you this is one of the reasons I think that it's good is that it, it can speak beyond just the specific thing that it's talking about. In, in 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 two areas. One, it's just a joy to listen to that editing. Thank you, you. just and they're 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 not long episodes, like thirty minutes, twenty minutes, whatever. You're releasing three at one time. Yes. But also you make especially in that second one, I think, you make points that rise to a sort of universal appeal. That is my hope. And I think if you're not familiar with Triplicate Girl or that song, what is it, three oh Don't Trust Me. Don't trust me or even Grey's Anatomy, it won't necessarily matter. Mm -hmm. And it might even make you want to go listen to it and go, oh, well, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So I just think, especially for people of your generation, I I think that there's, you're you're tapping into that world of the YouTube video essay, the audio essay. You really are entering into something that you do as well and better than a lot of the people I've seen you. Seriously, you're doing a great job. You should just go on YouTube right now. I with my with my personality, I know, with my personality being what it is, having generally having to reach out to older people to find an audience of people who want to engage with me. I think I'm kind of at the forefront or at least locally there's people ahead of me for sure, for sure but I'm at the forefront of this sort of fracturing of a cultural identity. This idea of nostalgia uh, for 
cultural properties, I think is getting more and more segmented as we get into streaming services and mm-hmm. Bandcamp and Spotify and just the fractionalization of genre and identity as related to genre. And I really think there needs to be a place where we can express ourselves in this way of like, hey, I remember this thing. It doesn't really have a place in a cultural or a generational place, but it's a thing I remember and it's a thing that is important to me and I think it can be important to you too. Let me share it with you. And that's really what I hope to do with this series. Yay, I think it's great. I can't wait for people to listen to it. Thank you. I hope that you succeed beyond your wildest dreams. I hope Dolly doesn't bark too much. Dolly's about to go crazy, y'all. She heard she heard something outside. We're going to wrap up this episode. I just want to thank you, Fox. Thank you, Dolly P, for your barking. Yes. And we'll be back in two weeks. Yay! Bright in the corner where you are, people. Thank you for listening to Where You Are, created by Jimmy Ellenberg and edited by Fox Williams. Our intro this week included audio from a performance of Bright in the Corner Where You Are, created by Ina Dudley Ogden and Charles Hutchinson Gabriel, performed by Billy Pollard. Our new intro is Small Piano from the Ant Hill album by Patricia Taxon. Our outro also includes Kissing and Caps from the Little Spoon album and The Brightest Sunrise from the Beauty album, both also by Patricia Taxon. All music was used with permission. Thanks for listening. Have a nice day wherever you are.